0: Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on this podcast, calling in from Utah County via Zoom, love Zoom technology, is my friend, Dr. Ryan Anderson. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Um, Ryan is going to talk about a book he has written that will come out in 2022. He's also going to talk about a webinar that he's developed that's available now, and it's going to talk, and it talks about abuse within the church, and it's designed for leaders. So this is not an LGBTQ podcast or some of the other c- categories. We've never done a podcast actually on this topic, and that's why I'm glad to do it and have an active Latter-day Saint with expertise in this area, just to talk about abuse within the church. And this happens at times. And then I think the things Ryan's going to talk about is what is what do we do um as to help someone move forward in a situation like this um Ryan is a married father of four um four married father of four so obviously has four kids um, he is a practicing marriage and family therapist in Utah County and Ryan welcome to the podcast why don't you just walk us through you have a PhD but go all the way back to your bachelor's just give us an idea of your degrees and where they came from and what they were in Absolutely.
1: So I did my undergraduate at Brigham Young University, studying marriage, family, human and and human development. From there, I stayed at BYU to get my master's degree in marriage and family therapy. Then I went over to East Carolina University, where I got a Ph.D. in medical family therapy, which is a focus of family therapy, kind of blending physical health care and mental health care. And my internship following that was at the Duke Comprehensive Cancer Center. I spent a lot of time working with uh, patients who had cancer, their families, kind of all the things that went around that. And then my career has kind of expanded into a couple of other areas. I've had specific continued training in trauma and treatment for trauma, as well as things like autism, ADHD, and other learning disabilities.
0: Um, thanks. If I'd met you in high school, would you, are you where you thought you'd be? Or is this completely <laughs> different than high, your high school thoughts about your future?
1: Um, you know, I think I always knew I wanted to do something where I would be helping people. Uh, that was always important to me. I'd kind of gone through some struggles of of my own for a variety of reasons and recognizing how helpful it could be that there were tools and and things out there that can can lift people out of suffering that they don't have to be in. So I wasn't sure exactly what it would be. Um, If you told me I'd be working a lot with teenagers and young adults as a teen, I would have told you you were nuts. But I have learned that that is really a population I love working with because of kind of the unique and an exciting developmental phase they're in and the fact they have an entire life still in front of them.
0: Uh, what a, That's a great insight into just where you are. And I think that's great for young people listening, just to know a general impression you feel um, before you embark on your college career and what that can lead to. Another follow-up question before we get to kind of the topic, if I had met you in your bachelor's degree at BYU, would you have said, I'm definitely getting a PhD? <laughs>
1: Uh that's, because good that's question. a
0: long road, Ryan. It took you to East Carolina and I think you're probably married and taking kids to the East Coast. So just talk about that. Yeah.
1: I think for me, and, and this you'll this talks a little bit to my personality. Um when I am stepping into a position where people are handing me very vulnerable things, their pains, their difficulties, their struggles, things that they often don't talk about. I kind of feel a very great responsibility to be as prepared as I possibly can be. I know I'm not the one who's going to make their decisions. I know I'm not the one who's going to fix things, but I really felt a very large responsibility to make myself as useful as possible. And so there was a sense that I would always kind of continue with a lot of continuing education, but I also wanted to make sure I understood the science and could contribute to the science in the field. So I think about a year in, after I had learned to kind of not completely drown in the amount of reading that was a part of that degree, um, I kind of made the decision that I felt like a PhD was going to be the right thing to do. Uh, And ultimately, it's a decision I'm I'm very glad I did. Although during that time, it was kind of just years of, if you put your shoulder to the wheel, push along, and then push and push some more. (laughs) I've often talked about getting a PhD as, having someone set a very long list of unrealistic expectations that you actually have to complete. And I think that's pretty accurate. Um, but I definitely feel like it was worth it.
0: That's an interesting description for a PhD. That's very helpful for me, someone who doesn't have a PhD, but thank you for what you've done and, and the door opening opportunities this give you to bless people's lives because of this long education um, tunnel you've been in I don't know if tunnel is the right word but some people describe that to me as a doctor and all the things a medical doctor does in this long tunnel and once you come out of the tunnel then your ability to help people is sort of magnified but often that's a pretty long road talk yeah, about introduce this topic to us abuse within the church just t- talk about how you got connected that space what your area of focus is just kind of run with that Ryan mm.
1: so This is is a topic that I've been introduced to on a number of different levels. Um, On one level, as a professional, it's something that you run into far more frequently than you wish you would. Um, In fact, if, if you're going to work in some kind of helping profession, you are going to run into abuse, not just for people outside of the church, but inside of the church. And also in my own personal life, I have some people who are are very, very dear to me, very important to me, who've lived through it. And they've had both the experience of positive and helpful responses from friends, from family members, from leaders within the church on a local level, but also some, some responses that were very challenging and made things worse and prolonged suffering. And so for me... I kind of became very passionate about the idea that clearly God doesn't want people to suffer. And I think when we really read the doctrines, if we really dive into what the scriptures say, and if we really dive into what's been said by modern prophets, it's very clear that that God is an opponent of abuse. And he is an advocate of people who are trying to find a way to rise above it and no longer suffer from it. Uh, however, also as someone who's a bit of a critical thinker and taking a look at how things have formed culturally, traditions that have formed, there have been traditions and cultural issues that have not been aligned with that and have have put people in positions where when they've turned to friends, family, or spiritual leaders for help, what they've received and said has led them feeling like they had to continue to suffer indefinitely and forever and that there would be no relief and and so for me watching that i've seen people who felt that they felt it was their religious obligation to continue to be abused over and over and over again and that that was their form of enduring to the end and sometimes they've been told that explicitly and i really from my experiences and again i'm not i'm not a a religious authority i'm a religious scholar I'm a mental health authority, but I really have come to believe that that's not what God intends. God does not intend anyone to just stay in abuse. God doesn't say you become more Christ-like by allowing someone to abuse you. And so for me, it became very important to help both people who are being abused and also people who are in position to help them to know what is the actual doctrine What are the actual policies? What is the actual guidance that's given? How would God want us to respond? And also, what can we learn from science about it? And how can those two things come together to help us create a healing response for people who are being abused? And not only that, but to help people who are doing the abusing actually change and repent. They need help, too. And anything we're doing that's facilitating abuse continuing is not only doing harm to the victims, but is doing harm to the person who's doing the abusing as well. And so that's kind of where my my passion around this comes from.
0: Talk about abuse. Is this abuse like within a family, like sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, that then someone's turning to a church leader and that can be... Um, a choppy experience, a good experience, or not a good experience? Or is this abuse within the church from an, a leader um, that in his stewardship or her stewardship is causing an abusive relationship for some members?
1: So what I'm talking about mostly is people who are in a position where they've experienced some kind of abuse. And most abuse happens from someone that you're very close to. It's very rare that it comes from a stranger. Most abuse unfortunately happens within a family, whether a direct family or an extended family, although there are many situations where, you know, it can be, you know, I'm aware growing up, I mean, we're all aware of the abuse that was occurring within the, the Boy Scout organization. One of the reasons I believe the church has decided to take a different path than scouting. Um, I've, I've watched very closely as other churches, other religions, have had their days of reckoning about abuse that happens within the religion. And unfortunately, that does occur with within every church. We're, we're no exception. Um, but what I'm talking mostly about is someone coming and saying, whether it's a close family member or an extended family member, and then turning to leaders of the church for help. And you ask kind of the question, is it, is it sexual abuse? Is it physical abuse? There's a lot of different categories of abuse. And I think some of them are more intuitively understood than others. Uh, is, although some of the ones you'd think would be intuitively understood are not so much. Um, but we're taking a look at things like spiritual abuse as well. And the idea of spiritual abuse is someone, well, let me back up a bit. All abuse, at its core, is about power and control, about using the abuser's agency to override the victim's agency. And there's a lot of different ways that that can be accomplished. That can be accomplished by pain or the fear of pain, both directly against the victim or against someone the victim cares about. So, for example, you can abuse someone by threatening to to hurt or kill their pet. It's not against them specifically, but it's a way to control them. Um, Spiritual abuse is interesting because we can use spiritual ideas. We can, I would say, pervert spiritual ideas to try to override the agency of another person. So the idea of, of saying, hey, look, I have the priesthood, which, by the way, we can talk about that phrase a whole lot. But I hold the priesthood, and therefore what I say goes, and you must obey. I hope we all understand that's not the way the priesthood works. That is the way some of these conversations go. Or there are situations where a member of the family says, I am entitled to revelation for the whole family. You will not receive your own. And if you think you receive some revelation about a path in your life, but I don't agree you must do what I say, or ways that sometimes they will punish you for practicing your spirituality in a way that's different. There can be, well, you know, you're not keeping the Sabbath day the way I think you should, or you're embarrassing me by this comment that you make in church, you're not allowed to make that comment. So it we can use spirituality just like we can misuse anything to try to control someone else. And of course, there's emotional abuse there's verbal abuse. Um, and there's lots of ways where we can manipulate social relationships to create isolation, to encourage other people to have a certain way of seeing someone else that is a negative way of seeing them. That So that person is discounted, rejected, seen as crazy. These are all different ways that abuse can occur. And oftentimes people who commit abuse are very skilled at using all of them in some way or another but i want to be clear that abuse can happen even if there's never physical contact of any kind and in fact oftentimes the most damaging forms of abuse are the psychological the emotional and the spiritual abuse because at the end of the day for someone who's faithful latter day saint who is going to do anything possible to keep their covenants to be faithful if you can twist that feeling to tell them because of that, you must do X, Y, and Z, which is essentially following my will. That's a huge perversion of the gospel. But for someone who is faithful and dedicated, they will not fight against that. And it, something that should be good and uplifting becomes something that is oppressive. It's not the gospel that's oppressive, it's the misuse of gospel ideas in a way that's designed to control someone in a way that the savior would never endorse.
0: Well, now you've got my attention, Ryan, this is really good content. No one's talked about this kind of stuff. I picked up it on social media and some threads at time. And um, this is very helpful. Just I'm going to do a little bit of a sidetrack because right now people may want to know how to get to your webinar. Let's plug it right now and we'll we'll put it in the show, we'll put it in the podcast link listeners, and we'll talk about it at the end. But just tell people how they get to your webinar.
1: So Cedar Fort Academy online uh, offers a number of webinars. This was a webinar we felt so strongly about that it's completely free. Um We just want you to be able to access it without any kind of boundary. We want you to share it with whoever you possibly can. And so all you do is you just have to create a free account and then you have free access. I believe the webinar is just called Religion and Abuse. Um, And again, behind it, what you'll find is the webinar is very supportive of the church. We're not saying the church is abusive. We're talking about how the church can be misused and misrepresented to perpetuate abuse, but also how leaders in the church can respond appropriately to abuse the way that the Lord is intending and the way that he's been clarifying through a lot of the new policies and procedures that have been put in place since uh, 2018.
0: Uh, thank you for that. Talk about, um, you know, I'm a parent of six kids, but we're all kind of empty nesters now. They're roughly from 20 to 30. Six of them scrunched in there in 10 years, kind of crazy. But You know, as I'm thinking about spiritual abuse, I'm recognizing I probably, like a lot of Latter-day Saint parents, have engaged in that. Um, Talk about this sort of transition from young kids where you, you know, I don't know what the right vocabulary is. They don't, you know, especially before eight, they just kind of do it. Your parents, you know, they just do what the parents do. They go to church. And in the teenage years, you know, the the skills you're using as a parent maybe are more principle-based. and you're teaching them to honor their own agency and to choose their own path, but you still at times want to kind of course correct them to keep them on the path that you feel is best for them. And then of course, once your kids are in their twenties and thirties, your role in their life to do that is seems like it's a lot different than it was at 13 or 14. And, and for some parents like me, that's a transition that's a little unsettling at times. Just talk about, you know, that, for any parents that are trying to do what I'm doing is transition out of younger kids to older kids.
1: Sure. And, and to do that, I'll, I'll provide a little bit of a framework, and then we'll kind of talk into that. Um, absolutely. Our, our children are going to learn best by us involving them in spiritual practices, ideally, from the time they're young. But there's one thing I've learned is it's it's very easy to be involved in the practices. But but to never actually have the experiences, if that makes sense. I'm reminded of the conference talk where it talks about, you know, we're inviting them to the dance, but have they learned to hear the music? And there's a whole, there's a whole webinar we could have, right? A whole podcast we could have about what that looks like and and what that means and different ways that people feel the spirit um, and how you help them recognize that they're doing that. But one thing I'd want to say, even from the very beginning, while while we do want to teach our children spiritual practices, and not just practices, but spiritual connection, one thing I've learned is you cannot punish and reward someone's way into having a testimony. Um, You cannot carrot and stick a spiritual experience. And that's the difficult part, is that when we find our children struggling with some kind of spiritual issue or an issue of obeying some kind of commandment. It's not to say that, you know, we just take the gloves off and say, hey, look, child, do whatever you want to do, and I'm I'm not going to step in and guide you in any way. But the one thing we need to be aware of is that if all we're doing is trying to make the behavior happen, then that's all we will accomplish. All we will accomplish is making the behavior happen for so long as we are in a position to create those those structures and those boundaries. And then when that's released, they have no reason to continue doing those things because they haven't felt anything. And so, so one thing I would just kind of encourage is that every step along the way is, while we teach gospel principles, perhaps the most important thing is when we can notice when we're feeling the Spirit, when they're feeling the Spirit, and we help them recognize it, become familiar with it, have experiences of following it enough to learn to trust it. And I have found that that's what carries someone from being a childhood member to a lifelong member of the church. Now, as as our children grow, um, we are not going to be able to sufficiently just shelter them from everything bad. And maybe that's not even what we're supposed to do. And we also can't just, you know, snap our fingers and help them have a spiritual experience. But the the thing we can do all along the way is, one, talk about what we're experiencing. And two, talk about what they're experiencing. Ask them how they're making sense of it. Explore those sorts of things with them. And, and as they have doubts or questions or concerns, the first thing they need to experience from us is that we are safe. That they can bring doubts that they can bring struggles to us and we're not suddenly going to freak out and make that a conversation which feels unsafe but they can come to us and say i'm not sure i have a testimony of the church in fact i'm not even sure if i know that god exists or wow i'm really struggling with the church's policies on marriage or with the church's uh with with tithing you know the fact that i'm you know i'm barely making it by and they want me to pay 10 percent, or you know Or with the fact that, you know, this statement has come out about vaccinations and it's what I believe or it's not what I believe or whatever it may be. And so the first thing they need to know is, look, the whole restoration of the gospel began with questions. We should be really good at embracing questions and doubts and confusion. And and they need to know that we're not afraid of that feeling that we're not telling them, just put on a happy face, just, just act righteous and this will go away. In psychology, we talk about something called toxic positivity. And it's not that being positive is toxic, it's that when you fake it, rather than go through the process of finding your way to get to it, it becomes this thing which has the opposite effect. It makes you more depressed, putting on a smile. I would propose the idea of toxic whitewashed spirituality right where it says make sure you you look like you're never struggling make sure you look like you never have any questions or concerns and they'll go away that's not the way that works it becomes sort of the the dark hole that we lock things away inside of us tends to ferment them until they they work their way out explode and so the most important part is let our children know they need to know we love them they need to know that we are going to support them as they pursue good things. They need to know, you know what, as you grow up, you're not going to be exactly like me. There will be some ways you think about the world that are the way I think about it, and there's some ways that are different. And ideally, I think a lot of those are going to be hopefully better than me. Hopefully you've grown. And your spiritual understanding is not going to be exactly like mine either. And I hope so. I hope that you will grow and learn and develop and, and become even more than I've been able to be. Not that I'm setting the bar low for myself, but I, I hope so. And I hope the day will come that the questions you're asking and the answers you're getting will be ones I could never give you because that's how you'll know you're actually getting answers from the Spirit and not just relying on the light and knowledge of your parents. And so that the, the problem is a lot of it is learning to say, I need to let them appear however they're going to appear, work on whatever they're going to work on. What they need to know is I have a testimony and that I also respect their need to have a reason to believe what they believe, to have had experiences that reinforce that. Now, at the end of the day, I'll encourage and I'll invite and entice and I'll share and I'll also make sure that they are 100% certain that I love them. And that I'm never going to step in and say, you are doing something that I no longer agree with. And therefore, I am going to try to force or punish or coerce. And and I'll be here with whatever your journey looks like.
0: It's a great segment, Ryan. I I think of, you know, I would go back and have theoretical conversations with my kids and sort of say, you know, if if you have questions about the church, this is how I would respond. If you um in a, inadvertently or or advertently, if that's a word, see pornography, this is how I would respond. If you drop the F bomb in our family or in a friend group, that's against our family teachings, but this is how I respond. I mean, I I don't want to encourage um sort of behavior outside the teachings of our church or our family, mm-hmm. but I love what you're sort of teaching is I as a parent want to know what's going on in my kid's life and for them to know I'm a safe person. So sometimes I wish I could go back and tell children how I'd respond given the different things that may come in their life that I want to be a safe person. So they'll talk to me and they'll know how I'll respond. And I think some of the things I could have done, you know, we're kind of done with raising kids, at least young kids is. I've said kind things about other people as a way to just help my under kids understand how I would treat them, like people that perhaps have, have chosen not to go on a mission or have come home from their mission earlier or have an addiction or even have separated themselves to the church for a period of time. I think we can learn to say kind things about all those groups of people, people in different political parties, people that got the vaccine, didn't get the vaccine, to your point. And I think it creates a culture in the family that we want as parents because I just want to be with my kids in their best moments, but where they need me the most, but they're not sure if I can go there. Talk about, um, I'm in my ward, you know, I'm in, I guess we're all in elders' corner now, I was going to say high priest. A lot of, you know, parents in their 60s and 70s have adult children that have separated themselves from the church and it's hard. Um. And there's a lot of feeling of failure, perhaps more with mo- women than men, because maybe women have spent more time raising kids, and they're more vested, and they f- they feel really bad, as you know, and um, they're worried about their eternal family. They, they often look at other families that have all their kids in the church, and then they go down this whirlpool of self-reflecting that, you know, I obviously missed family night three times in 1984. That's why my kids out of the church just— <laughs> Talk, talk to people that just need what you would say just, if I if I were on your couch, opening up about this pain in my life of adult children that don't participate in the church, and then we'll kind of move on. Sure.
1: So the the first thing I would say is is provide a little bit of perspective. Um, we know of one perfect parent, and we know that exactly one third of his children have nothing to do with the church to the point where they didn't even qualify for mortality. Um, So when you take a look and say, if I'd just done everything right, well, we know of a father and mother who do everything right. And a third of their family is not there. And so that's not to say, hey, are there ways that we can improve our parenting? There always are. But to say... I think I think the second piece is to also, do we understand the deal? And let me explain what I mean by that. We accepted this plan of salvation. And when we did that, we were fully aware that the deal was agency will be a part of it, our own and other people's. That's going to be a huge part of it. And in fact, anything that would take that away couldn't lead to the kinds of outcomes that our heavenly parents were trying to create for us. And I think sometimes the difficult part, and and I know for myself, um, some of what I grew up when I was kind of in my younger spiritual development was beginning to think about the gospel as a little bit of a spiritual force field. That if I, you know, prayed and read my scriptures and uh, did all of the things right, you know, did my home teaching went, you know, perform fast offerings very well, all of those things, that, that the kind of idea is that your force field would be up and, and bad things would not happen to you and bad things would not happen to the people that you love. And boy, I understand why that kind of thinking is appealing. Uh, we all want to have some kind of assurance that, that we'll be protected and that when we talk about abuse, you know, sometimes what we do is we take a look at people who are victims of abuse and we say, you were doing this and that's why you got abused, which is a terrible thing to say to someone because victims aren't abused because of the victim. Abuse is about the abuser. But part of what we do is we say that because we're saying, I really don't want that to happen to me. And so if I can find out something about that other person that's different than me. I can explain why they had that bad thing happen to them and why it won't happen to me. And I I throw them under the bus for my own sense of security, a very human thing to do, but not a very healthy thing to do. And so the tricky part is we're saying, yes, you have worked to teach your children the gospel. You have worked to, to hold family home evenings. You work to do all those things. And if, if you think you did it perfectly, you're probably delusional because nobody did. Um, and you're saying, wow, I wish I could have given more. But really what, what your job was was to prepare the soil to have a plot of land that your child could cultivate and plant and work on harvesting with you. And ultimately they had to be the ones to taste of the fruit from that. Or not and to continue to go back to it and that's very much what this is like is that you can do all those things but they can have experiences that that make it hard for them or they can have really struggled to ever feel like it was theirs they they they're like yeah it's something I did but I don't know that I was ever really into it there's all kinds of reasons there's so many reasons why people may not be active in the church some of it may be, and I, I know many people. One of the reasons i'm I am ardent about talking about responding to abuse appropriately is that some people have gone for help and have been told the abuse is your fault. If you were more attractive, if you were more obedient, if you were more spiritual, if you were just more submissive, this wouldn't happen to you, and the Lord expects you to submit. And people hear that, and their heart knows it's wrong. But because it came from someone they trusted in the church, they feel like the church has betrayed them. The church didn't. The gospel didn't. A person made a mistake. And it was understood from them to be from the Spirit. But it wasn't. And so that's the reason some people go, so there are so many reasons why people may be straying from the church. And honestly, if you were powerful enough to be responsible for every struggle your child has, I'd be kind of afraid of you if you really were that powerful. Did you make mistakes? Yes. Did you do a lot of things right? Chances are you also did. But when you understand what the real deal is, that your job is to cultivate and plant seeds, but then you need to let them be a part of choosing. And they've chosen and right now, this is where they are. But also one thing I want to do, I just, I just want to say my experience has been that God plays a very long chess game. I've seen that in my own life, where there were things that were not where they needed to be. And step by step, he put the right things in place to put the right experience in front of me that I never could have created on my own. God hasn't given up on any of his children, including yours, if they're not currently in the church. He sees more than you do. He has more influence than you do. And you can be certain he's not done playing his long chess game for your child. And so your role is to make sure that your child can still feel like you're someone they can come to. So when those crucial moves of the chess game come together... You'll be someone that they're willing to talk to, and so that's that's some of the advice I would give.
0: It's great advice. I love this visual imagery of God plays a very long chess game. Let's transition. This is great stuff, Ryan. Let's transition into um, helping church leaders when someone opens up about abuse. Just,
1: mm-hmm. and I
0: recognize listeners that in 2013, when I was called to be a singles ward bishop, um, some of this presented itself to me and I had no training on that. I hadn't been to any classes. I listened to Ryan's webinar. I don't know how well I did (laughs) or didn't do, but I just recognize uh, in being honest, I had no, you know, experience, no clinical training, obviously, of of what to say. And I is, I'm aware of a culture that you've re- referenced already, and I think you'll circle back to is, it could be a church culture, society culture, where sometimes bad things happen because somebody made it, it's their fault. And this spiritual force field that you talked about, it's another great visual, that if they had just had their spiritual force filled up and had been doing all the things they were supposed to do, that this bad thing wouldn't have happened to them. So the fault is somehow with them. So I'll just, with that lead in, run with it, Ryan.
1: So there's there's a couple of things I'd want everyone to know. First of all, I, I understand some of the hesitation that people feel when someone comes and talks about abuse. You know, you're sitting down saying, I was really hoping not to have, have this conversation today. And part of what we're worried about is this is about to open a can of worms. But one of the things we need to know is the can of worms is already there and it's already open by us beginning to respond and and help people with abuse we are literally not causing any more trouble than already exists what we're doing is is very much i think about it like surgery think about this someone comes in with a gunshot wound and you say i don't i don't want to operate on that because you know it's already pretty messy and if i start to cut into that person that's just that's more tissue damage that's more blood loss let's just kind of let this play out well just the same thing there Again, lived in Durham, North Carolina, saw a few gunshot wounds. Um, The whole idea was what you're doing, the whole purpose of the surgery is to go in and to begin to put things back together in a way where they can heal. Whereas if you leave it unaddressed, that will continue to fester, become gangrenous. It will kill. And so you take a look and you're worried, boy, I don't want to cause trouble for people. You're not. Trust me, you're not. The next thing that you need to know is people are like, well, what if what if this is a false report? What, What if I'm, you know, they're saying something about their father or their husband or their mother, and it's a false report, I would really, really hate to cause trouble. So here's one thing I want everyone to know, the number of reports of abuse that turn out to be false is infinitesimal. When you take a look at the research, you're looking at rates of somewhere between 1% to 3% of reports of abuse turn out to be either misunderstandings about what happened or actual fabrications. So what what you can safely assume is 97% of the time or more, a report of abuse that comes to you is true. And hopefully that information helps you know okay, I need to act on this. The only logical thing to do right now is to believe that person. It's not my job to interrogate or to drill them or to investigate. The tricky part is there, there are two crimes in which it's the victim who goes on trial and not the, the perpetrator. And one of those crimes is rape. Well, what were you wearing? Did you really say no enough? Did you really, I mean, did they get it? You know, did did you somehow lead them on? You get the same thing in abuse. But you know, you must have done something to make them that angry, right? Or you know, I, I know I know him. He's the elders quorum president. That doesn't sound like him. There's no way that that man could have done what you just described to me. And we kind of go into this. Ah, uh, you know, let's let's question. Let's let's drill in. Well, ninety seven percent of the time, they're telling you the truth. And so also one thing to keep in mind is if, if you were a bishop, right, and you had a member of your ward come to you and say, I think I might have a cancerous growth, how would you handle that? You wouldn't sit down and pray and say, okay, let's pray and get a confirmation as to whether, this, whether you have a cancerous growth. And once we get that confirmation, I'm going to pray. And just like God inspired Nephi to build a boat, I'm going to have him inspire me to build a radiation machine. And just like God inspired Nephi to build a bow, I'm going to have him inspire me how to do the right surgery here. And I have no background in chemistry whatsoever, but I'm going to have him inspire me to come up with the right chemotherapy. And I'm going to administer all of this to you myself as your judge in Israel. Like you would never think about doing that. And that, that sounds crazy. That is crazy. Well, what you need to understand is what goes on beyond abuse is just as complex psychologically, socially, all those things going on. And isn't it funny that sometimes we feel like, hey, let's step in and let's investigate and let's figure this out. If you're a doctor, dealing sorry, a bishop dealing with someone with cancer, you would help them get to the doctor. When you're a bishop or an elders quorum president or a relief society president or a state president who's dealing with someone saying, I am being abused, I need help. You get them to the people who God has prepared to help. And that's that's the whole idea is that we were saying we, we should report. We should connect. We should never discourage against that. If they're saying they need help, we connect them rather than saying, eh, I'm sure it's not cancer. Just wait a couple of years. You know, we wouldn't do that. And that's not what we should do either. So believe them. And recognize that God does not expect you to be all things to all people. Connect them with the people who he has prepared. Um, The first thing, if you read the new policies that are in place, they're saying our first and most important duty when there's reason to believe that abuse might happen. Notice, reason to believe might, right? You don't have to have, here's red-handed, hand in the cookie jar, It's when there is some reason to believe. What's reason to believe? Someone's telling you they're being abused. That's reason to believe. So the first thing that we need to do is to say, what do we need to do to help this person be safe? We need to help protect victims and and people who could potentially continue to be hurt. Uh, and, And again, you don't have to do that all on your own. There are resources Um, You know, one of the first things I encourage people to do is to call a victim advocate. They can talk about what is the degree of actual physical danger here? What are the resources in place to help out with that? Because one thing you need to know is that when people first start talking about abuse, and especially if they're thinking about doing to protect themselves, that's actually the most dangerous time for them. That's when abuse tends to accelerate. That's when most of the homicides that happen around this tend to occur. And so keep in mind, it's not, this is something that can go on the back burner. And maybe this is dangerous. Maybe it's not. It's let's get them to someone who can help them evaluate their safety. Let's help them make sure that they have resources and opportunities that if they need to get out of dodge fast, they can, because sometimes that's absolutely necessary for preserving someone's life. So believe them help them recognize the first need is physical safety. Um, The next thing I would say is that they're going to need opportunities, resources, connections. And again, it's not all up to you, but there are some things that as as a leader in the church you can do. They might find themselves in a position where they temporarily don't have a place to stay. You can help them and you can also connect them. There are funds in place. Again, I always say go to the victim advocates. also, one thing to keep in mind, and this is very important, when someone's been abused, it's very common that they they come across as wishy-washy or flaky, or they're having a hard time telling a story that feels like it makes coherent sense. That is what trauma does to a brain. That's not a sign of someone lying or making things up. And so sometimes people run into that and say, I don't know, this just doesn't add up to me. I'm, this person's maybe making things up. No, that's that's what trauma looks like. Trauma looks like a, a brain that has been literally compromised like on a physical level. If you and I were to take a, a quantitative uh, EEG of someone's brain who's been traumatized, you can see it. The brain's not communicating well with the different parts that are there. And so this is a part to keep in mind. They need to be able to know what their options are. But the most important thing in this is you can help them explore options, but you need to not make decisions for them. This is one of the most important parts. When someone's been abused, their agency has been compromised. And in fact, they've often gotten out of practice using their agency. And if part of the problem is their agency has been compromised, us forcing their agency in any number of directions isn't actually going to help. There may be times if there is an extreme danger where we might need to call the police ourselves to protect someone's life. But that's the biggest thing you need to try to preserve is help the person learn about what their options are, encourage them, make sure they're safe enough physically to thaw out enough to make their own choices and as they make those choices, honor those choices, and work with them to help them find ways to work through the obstacles that are in the way. That's very important. Reinstate, honor, and protect their agency. There's a lot more we could talk about, but those are a couple of opening pieces of advice that I would give.
0: Very helpful. Talk about victim admi- advocacy. So I I'm thinking back to. Just the resources I had. I had the church abuse hotline that I could call if I, you know, if I knew it was a legal situation that required me getting good legal advice based on the information I was hearing. Um, There were other situations that, you know, I was aware of or that didn't require that. um, But there's, so the victim, I think the victim advocacy is, is that part of the church or is that more of a government community organization that local leaders can ch- turn to?
1: So almost almost every police department or district of a court somewhere has has someone who's set aside as what's called a victim advocate. So if you were to go to, uh, for example, if the Orham Police Department, the Provo, Salt Lake, each one of these police departments has attached to them a victim advocate's office. And a victim advocate is someone who has several very specific roles. First is they come in a, in a, in crisis and they're there for emotional and immediate psychological support and resources. So if someone needs to find out, Hey, I'm in danger, I need to get to a shelter or, Hey, I feel like I need to get out and, and, and have some way to take care of myself, but I've never been able to finish my education or all those kinds of things. A victim advocate's job is to come in, evaluate immediate safety, work on establishing immediate safety, help with any of the initial legal things. So for example, if someone needs a protective order, a victim advocate can help prepare that paperwork, submit it, usher that through to the uh, prosecuting attorney, things along those lines. And so there's someone who works for different police departments. And the nice thing is that the services of victim advocates are available entirely for free. So essentially if if you're looking for a victim advocate calling, and the nice thing is with a Google, you know, just Google victim advocate and then your city name and it'll pop up. Um, And that's a wonderful resource to get people in touch with. Also, whenever there are, are children involved um, Child Protective Services or the Division of Child and Family Services. So, for example, in Provo, we have the Children's Justice Center. Um, and so these would be a couple of places I would call first. So Child Protective Services, if a child's involved, Victim Advocate, if you have either adults or children who are involved. And they are a wonderful doorway to just kind of get you through the first couple of steps and help you figure out how to connect with what other resources you're going to need available to you?
0: That's very helpful. Do you know enough about a subject I'm not up to speed on anymore? Because I, have, I haven't been a bishop for, you know, several years. It's probably about five years now. Just what is if a bishop what's required of a bishop to call the the abuse hotline? Do you have it? So if if you're you willing take, to talk about that, that would be helpful.
1: If you take a look at the policy as it's written. It specifically says, anytime a bishop has reason to suspect there may be abuse, they should call the hotline. So they're saying, take the guesswork out of it. If it feels like there's something going on, if if there's any concern, if you see someone who comes in looking frightened of, of a family member, if someone's reported it, just the whole idea is just call, because there's absolutely no harm that's done in calling that hotline. And in fact, oftentimes there can be a lot of harm that's done and not part of, I don't want to get too deep into the legal stuff, right? But when we talk about our our legal obligation to make sure that if there's any indication of abuse that we've investigated and looked at it, um, this is kind of our first line of defense of saying, hey, I had reason, some reason to believe I called and consulted, um, that's always going to be your your best course of action.
0: Could I call in the abuse hotline, even if no one's told me anything? It's just a feeling I have. I'm uncomfortable about a situation. My There's just an uncomfortableness. That's one question. The second question is, could a release society president call directly or an elders quorum president, or is this for bishops? So if I'm a release society president seeing something concerning, should I first go to the bishop and let the bishop call the
1: hotline? So I know the answer to the first one is, is first of all, um, yes, even if, even if no one's told you anything, if you see something and your spidey sense is tingling, um, you can, you can call and say, here's what I'm observing. So for example, I saw, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a woman walk in. And the one thing I always look for is the woman who is over explaining her injuries. One woman comes to mind of, Oh yeah, I had a a bike wreck. I'm so clumsy. You know, I don't even remember hitting my eye, but I've got a black eye and they're they're just explaining it too much. For me, whenever I see that, I go, "Uh uh-oh, that's a problem. Uh, That's something that worries me because of my experience working in the field. Um, And so sometimes it's just, I'm seeing this. I just, I need to let someone know what I'm seeing and get some counsel. As far as your second question is whether Relief Society presidents or Elders Quorum presidents can call directly, Um, I might be mistaken on this. My current understanding is that the hotline is intended for bishops and stake presidents. So I've I've not read anything that would indicate that someone outside of those positions would call directly. So until you hear otherwise from someone who knows better, I would say if you're in one of those positions, to approach the bishop and say, here's what's going on. This seems like maybe time for us to give the hotline a call.
0: I think that's a good answer. I think the bishop has, you know, priesthood keys and stewardship responsibility. So I think if you're not a bishop and and having some of those intuition about somebody in your area of responsibility, young woman's leader, young men's leader, I think you should take that to the bishop yeah. and counsel together. Elder Ballard talks about counseling and um I think an exception yeah, with that mission. is if you're feeling that there's a bishop, you know, there are once in a while, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast. Um, potential situations with a local leader, even a bishop. And that's where I think we have a stake president. And I think that's a situation you'd go to a stake president. Talk about, um, so let's say someone is in an abusive situation and they're an active Latter-day Saint and they're not sure they want to tell their bishop. Um, They just may want to go to the victim advocacy, advocacy. I'm not using the right vocabulary, Ryan. Victim advocate. Yeah, and they just feel... I mean, you probably have people come and say, I'm not sure my bishop can go there. I don't feel comfortable with him. I kind of need a priesthood leader, though, in my life or to help me, guide me through the spiritual components and help me better access the atonement to heal, not from anything I've done wrong, but some of the pain that's come in my life. Just talk about
1: that space. Yeah. So the the first thing I would say, first and foremost, is... As I mentioned previously, we want to really respect and build up the agency of people who've been abused. Um, and so if they're saying, I don't feel like I'm ready to talk to my bishop about this right now. I just want to talk to a victim advocate. Then you say, that's wonderful. Please do. Please go get the help that you're ready for. Know that we're here. We are going to be supportive. And that's sometimes what they need. That's That has been my experience is the biggest thing they need to hear is, what you need from us, we will provide, we will support you, we don't want you to be hurt, whatever you need. And sometimes it's like, okay, I get that. So the the question, part of the question is, what if they don't want to talk to their bishop, but they want some kind of spiritual guidance? And of course, that, that gets a little bit tricky. But the first thing I would say is, always start with who are they willing to talk to? And the one thing I've found is that that usually can become a bridge to, to someone they need to talk to. So again, maybe it's not a bishop, but maybe it's, maybe it's an elders quorum president. Maybe it's a member of the stake presidency. The good news about this is as in, there are certain things that the bishop does need to kind of safeguard if they're looking for um, specific aid or things like that, that does need to go through the bishop. But where you start with is help them start with who they do feel safe with. And then, as, as the bishop and the other people who are in a position um, to, to hold the keys work on building their relationship with that person they do feel safe with, you can use that ultimately as, as a bridge. When they know, hey, look, I trust the bishop, I'll go with you, we can do this together. Um, you know, I'm, I'm confident that the response is going to be supportive and helpful, and I'll be there. That's the kind of bridging we can do. So as long as it's someone who's in that, in that position of stewardship, um, we can work on that bridging to get there. And, you know, sometimes it's a matter of saying, maybe it will never be the bishop per se, it will be the stake president. Maybe it's because, you know, I've been in a position where it's been the bishop's son and you can understand why they don't feel that they can go to the bishop because it's a huge conflict of interest for the bishop. And so it's, it's a member of the state presidency instead. And you say, you know what? That's reasonable. And we'll work with that.
0: It's, I love the principles you're teaching. You're not answering the question as much as teaching principles that apply to multiple situations. I love the idea of starting with someone you can talk to and the importance that you're not shouldering this alone. You have a trusted ally as you're starting to move forward or heal or deal with this complex situation. I think the point that we both feel there's, there's no sin involved here. So there's no, there's no technical reason you need to talk to the bishop. I think culturally we just go to the bishop with, with stuff. Yes. Um, and I think a principle is there is personal revelation to know um, just if you're in an abusive situation and you know, you need, you get out of that and heal, um, I think we're both teaching just principle-based sort of personal revelation to know the best way to do that. And a lot of bishops can be really helpful in this space, but some, as we both know, may not have the tools and sort of go back to those things that you were teaching us not to do is make that person have to defend themselves or prove themselves. I always felt like we don't need to And no one needs to prove their pain. We just accept it. (laughs) Um, Because that just sort of re-traumatizes them. If they have to, you know, even if it doesn't feel like a painful experience to us, we can all of a sudden re-traumatize people.
1: And I love that you bring that up. And that's so important to understand. Almost always, with almost every person I've ever known who's been abused, one of the things they've been told, and it has worked its way into their soul, the abuser tells them first of all no one's ever going to believe you if you try to talk about this and even if they do they'll side with me and and the difficult part is that when we put ourselves in that position of kind of being the spanish inquisition for people who are coming to us telling us they've been abused we don't realize it but we've just made ourselves a tool in the hand of the abuser we've played out exactly the weapon they used to tell the person you just have to continue to to let me control and hurt you because look at me they're going to believe me not you and that's that's exactly one of the things we have to be so cautious about allowing ourselves to be misused as a weapon against someone who's been abused
0: I'm thinking of things local leaders can do, you know, just to create. I, I don't, you know, I don't recommend giving a word conference talk and saying if you're in an abusive relationship, I will believe you <laughs> that directly because it's possible the abuser would be aware of that and make the situation even more difficult. But I think there's ways that you can create a culture if you're a local leader, particularly a bishop, where people feel safe opening up to you. And if you're on social media, I think you do things on social media where saying seeing kind things about all groups of people. And perhaps even if you feel inspired, you know, talking about believing people that are in abusive situations, I think you can obviously use the life of Christ, um, that he was with everybody, um, and, and show that in your own work and your own talks and less of an us versus them, but more of just you know, I'm trying to be a safe person for everybody in this ward so that everybody will feel safe opening up to me. Our current bishop um, served as a, not not in the prison, but in a service assignment in the prison. And, And when he was called to be our bishop, he talked about this young man that was a convicted rapist. And that's obviously abuse. And he went through the criminal system, but he also talked about how he loved this young man. And he wasn't giving up on his criminal life or sort of dismissing that because I don't, I'm aware that there may have, there's victims there and we don't want to re victimize that. But he also talked about how he grew to love this young man. And I thought, if I'm sitting, and I thought of all the young people in our congregation, Ryan, and I thought, okay, I can talk to this bishop if he's going to say kind things about, and that gets a little complicated given the nature of this podcast. I don't want to, um, sort of give voice to abusers or someone who's a convicted rapist. But the principle I'm trying to share is just our bishop communicated. He was a very safe person in that first talk he gave as a new bishop. So I'll turn it back to you for any comments on that or just any final things you want to share. And I want to make so, sure you um, link back to your um, webinar. So
1: I, I, I will comment on that. I think the interesting thing, there was someone i knew who ultimately made the choice to leave an abusive relationship and she shared with me something that was profound she said she realized one of the most caring things she could do for that person was leave so that the circumstances in his life would be such where he would have to face and deal with what had led him to being that kind of person to doing those kind of things that he needed to have a path of liberation from that himself but as long as he had her to kind of be we talk about this idea of of antichrist and it sounds like it's someone who's against christ but it's also someone we're using as a substitute for christ as long as he had her to pay the price of his sins day in and day out he was never going to repent He was never going to be liberated from that and was one of the most loving things she could possibly do. Put him in a position where he could begin the process of being liberated. Was it painful? Yes. Was it what he wanted? No. Was it what he needed? It's what everyone needed. And so it's not about, hey, let's hate abusers and turn them into social pariahs. And there's the whole other conversation about what does repenting from having abused look like? And it's a lot bigger than just saying, hey, I'm sorry I, I hurt someone. It's like, wow, what was what going on inside of me that led me to leave a, a live a life like this? You know, it's very much like being an addict or, or other things like that where you go, this is about a whole lot more than the drugs, isn't it? Um, and so I, I agree, we don't have to be hateful to be safe for victims of abuse, um, they just have to know that we believe them, and we don't stand for anyone being hurt, and we just won't. Um, so, I, I appreciate the point that you're bringing there. As far as as closing thoughts, one one thing I want to share, I'm going to start with a downer and then go to a point of hope. What is discouraging is that right now. From the best we can tell in the research is that the rates of abuse happening in the church from one church member to another are actually slightly higher than the rates of abuse in the population in general. I think I can speak for everyone. and I should say this ought not to be. However, the good news is that we have research that shows that when communities have a response to abuse, Like we're talking about believing abusers, not abusers, believing victims, providing for them support, helping them create new experiences with their lives. That when a society does that, rates of abuse decrease substantially. We have it in our power. And the guidance we've been given in these policies is exactly the right guidance. And so we, we all have received a call to action to help reduce, put an end to this as much as possible. And it is in our power. And there's only really small things we have to do by which these great things will come to pass. The last thing I'd want to say is to anyone who is experiencing abuse, I want you to know God does not want you to be abused. You have the choice to turn to people. You have the choice to leave if you want. You have the choice to live a different life if you want. And that although you've been taught to believe that there's nothing better waiting for you, what I have seen time and time again on the other side of people who make that courageous choice is something far beyond what they ever believed possible. And I want people to know that I have seen that that is what God prepares for people. I want you to believe in it. That That's the last thing I'd really want to just emphasize. That's really
0: great. Um, we'll link to your webinar in our show notes, listeners, and talk again about when your book's out.
1: So the book should be coming out in the first quarter of 2022. Uh, we're still finalizing the title. Um, but it will be under my name, Dr. Ryan Anderson. One of the working titles is the healing response to abuse or something like that. So keep an eye open for it coming out of Cedar Fort. Hopefully it will be held in places like Deseret book and other places. You usually buy your LDS themed books and, and uh, please keep an eye open for it and and share it, share the principles, Um, help create hope. This is a great
0: podcast. I'd love if I don't have a good way of tracking things, but I think our listeners and I would love to have you back on the podcast when your book's out. You can tell us the book title and we could link to it in the podcast. So please reach back out, email me. Ryan. This is a really important subject that we haven't talked about. It certainly fits under the umbrella of this podcast is having people with key expertise helping us um, be better saints. And I thought of some of the I, I love. I wrote down when you defined rebu- abuse, it's about power and control, and I think that helps abusers. It helps people that are potentially abusers that may not recognize their abusive behavior, even the silent treatment that a prior podcast gets talked about. I is a form of abuse because it's power and control. And and I love what you're teaching here. And I think there's some scriptures that sometimes abusers might use, like turn the other cheek or. We're supposed to love our neighbor, but I love where you defined abuse that, that that is not appropriate behavior and that is not what we should do. If we're in a toxic relationship, we need to get out if we're in an abusive relationship. And it can help the abuser heal. And I love that I sort of think of the iceberg principle that a therapist taught me is when we see bad behavior, even an abuser, sometimes they need the help that they need to address the bottom of the iceberg stuff. It's resulting in this very destructive behavior so they can get the help they need and and put this behavior behind them. So you I'll know, turn it back to you now that I've sort of gone on. I want to make sure you can respond to that.
1: There's an interesting scripture study I would encourage people to do. What's very interesting, if you go through the scriptures and simply ask yourself the question, how many times in the scriptures is there a story of an individual or a group of people who are in an abusive oppressive situation and god's promise to them and god's work with them is to deliver them out of that and you begin to realize that's not that's not a once in a while thing in the scriptures it's all over the place this message is there everywhere you know Christ said to turn the other cheek. He doesn't tell us to slap the other cheek. You know, Um, when Christ says unto Pharaoh, let my people go, he delivers Alma and his people out of the abuse of the priests of Noah. Time and time again, it's shown God does not expect us to stay in abuse. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's were told to flee by God from people who intended them harm. You see this over and over again. The interesting thing, part of spiritual abuse, and I'll, I'll end with this. So the interesting thing is anytime time Terry Warner uh, made the observation that anytime time we do something wrong, we do it in the name of something right. And in the, in the gospel, we have all kinds of virtues and all kinds of gospel principles. And they're all designed to live in harmony with each other. But if you isolate one from the others, you can twist it from its proper use until it means the exact opposite thing of what it was intended to. You know, turn the other cheek is don't don't seek revenge. Don't become the abuser. Don't become diabolical to try to defeat someone who's being diabolical you will find a way, part of how you forgive is you put yourself in a position where they're no longer continuing to hurt you, right? That's, that's a part of the process. Um, but when you take a look, this idea, turn the other cheek is a gospel principle that fits with others. And when we look at the gospel as a whole, you know, think think a little bit about what we learned in the temple about the importance of the whole truth, Um, so that that good principles can't be, again, what is it said? Even the devil can quote, quote scriptures to try to get people to do things they shouldn't. We see him do that to the Savior himself. And so whenever we find bumper sticker gospel quotes rather than gospel quotes in context, that's when we have to be careful that what might be happening instead is spiritual abuse rather than an actual gospel principle being taught and understood
0: it's really good well listeners on behalf of all the listeners and me richard also we're really glad to have dr ryan anderson on the podcast for your unique and needed work and i encourage people to check out your webinar and read your book in the early part of 2022 and thank you our listeners for joining us on another episode of listen learn and love